look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. A bit of a somber podcast this week. We're going to reflect on the life and times of the winningest coach in NFL history, Don Shula, who died this week at the age of 90 at his home near Miami. You know, um, we're going to have Larry Zonka, one of Shula's greats, uh, a Hall of Fame fullback for the Miami Dolphins. He'll be my guest. He's going to be the only guest this week. Uh, We had quite an interesting discussion. I have to say it's one of the most enjoyable conversations I've ever done for this podcast. I really think you're going to enjoy it. Um, But I I wanted to touch base on a few things about Shula first. And just to tell you that, you know, a man's career in many ways is never defined by one thing. And it cannot be defined by one thing. Someone in the Pro Football Hall of Fame Everyone in the Pro Football Hall of Fame had some bad days in pro football and had some days that probably in his golden years uh, on the hammock out in his yard probably looks up at the sky and said, man, that day sucked. (laughs) Um, And I honestly feel like, you know, Don Shula had a few of those. and not in any way to focus on those, but I believe that some of those days made his brighter days even better. And I mean, being the losing coach in Super Bowl three, everyone talks, wow, what a day, biggest upset in pro football history. Joe Namath in the New York Jets, I guarantee it, we're gonna beat uh, the Baltimore Colts. And indeed, the Jets did. Baltimore Colts, 18-point uh, favorites in the game, lost the game. And it really bothered Shula for a long time, never really quite left him. All the years he had with Dan Marino, the 13 seasons he coached Dan Marino from 83 to his last year in 95, they never won a Super Bowl. That bothered him. Single games bothered him. But I'm going to tell you why, in my opinion, Um, if there would ever be a Mount Rushmore of NFL coaches, as Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, suggested, why Don Shula would be on it. And, And I think it's very simply that he empowered his players and his coaches as well or better than any person who's ever worked in the sport of pro football. He made his players and coaches feel year after year after year that I have been coached, even his coaches were coached, I have been coached 
to be able to do something great. And I'm going to go out and do that great thing. And, you know, a few, a few examples. You know, look at how many times Don Shula's teams use the backup quarterback for either part or all of the seasons. And look at how great those seasons ended up becoming. I bring you into the 1972 season. The only season in modern uh, football history. Larry Zonka is going to talk eloquently about that season uh, in a few minutes. But for most of that season, the quarterback wasn't Hall of Famer Bob Greasy. It was backup Earl Morrill, who had to take the reins and had to quarterback that team to this undefeated great season. Think of other seasons that uh, Shula has coached in his history. How about when David Woodley had to take over and quarterback the Miami Dolphins and nobody had ever heard of David Woodley. And David Woodley comes in and plays sufficiently to keep the playoff train moving in Miami. Uh, my favorite story, though, is when um, the Baltimore Colts, in one of his early years, had a big game they had to win the last game of the season in order to make the playoffs. Both of the quarterbacks were hurt in Baltimore. Uh, John Unitas and his backup. So what happens? Don Shula, the, that week in practice, gets a running back named Tom Maddy ready to play quarterback. He gives him 12 pass plays to learn, 12. He puts a wristband on Tom Maddy. They make up a wristband with all the plays and the calls on all those plays. And what happens? The Baltimore Colts win the game and make the playoffs. That, to me, uh, as much as anything else, is a real strength of Don Shula, the football coach. Now let's talk about Don Shula, the man. Um, I think most people, when they think about Shula, will think of a guy, a very honorable guy, and a guy who, more than anything else, wanted to make sure that he won the right way. You are going to hear a story from Larry Zonka about the honor of Don Shula that uh, is going to be quite compelling. <laughs> Let's just say that. I didn't know, I knew part of the story. I didn't know it all. And it is a, a heck of a story. But I just think that so many times, you know, when you have an experience and you get to know somebody, these are the stories you hear over and over again. Harvey Green, his longtime public relations director, uh, late in Shula's career, this would have been in the 90s. You know, he, he left football in 1995, Don Shula did, uh, retired after coaching the, uh, the uh, Dolphins that year. And so, you know, in one of those years, 92 or 93, every day after practice, Don Shula, Harvey Green, and the quarterback coach, Gary Stevens, would do a 20-minute run around the field complex there. They had two uh, regulation-sized football fields, 100 yards long, but 120 yards because of the end zones, uh, with pylons, uh, orange pylons, at the corner of each end zone. So they would start at one corner, run 120 yards, take a left, go 
the length of two football fields, come around and keep and, and run that for 20 minutes. And one day Shula noticed that Harvey Green um, was cutting a corner occasionally. That once in a while, he would, instead of going around the pylon, he'd go inside the pylon and then keep running. And at one point, not in such an angry way, but at one point he goes, why don't you run the way you're supposed to run? Why don't you run around the pylon instead of always cutting the corners? And, and Harvey Green said to me when I asked him about this, he said, Don Shula, in all of those runs, all of those months that we did that, never one time went inside the pylon. So, of course, Harvey Green at that moment changed the way he ran. <laughs> and then he always ran outside the pylons, too. Last thing I'll tell you, uh, and I talked with uh, uh, Larry Zonka about this uh, in, the, in our conversation. You know, I didn't, I wasn't close to Don Shula. I knew him. Um, but he was sort of in his twilight when I was just starting to be uh, a national football writer for Sports Illustrated in 1989. And so, you know, obviously I was around him, interviewed him many times. And, and uh, so I knew him. And I only incurred the wrath of Don Shula once. And that is when. I basically wrote a pro football history book and part of the history book was about the best teams of all time, but it wasn't necessarily a single season best team. It was for an era, you know, the Packers winning five titles in the, in the sixties and the Browns um, playing in the championship game of their, of their league 10 years in a row, the all America football conference and the NFL. So, and I didn't name the Dolphins the, the best team. And, and I remember, you know, the next conversation I had with him after that, he just said, you know, how could we have won every game in a season? Something no other team has done. How are we not the best team? How are we not the best team of all time? And I explained to him, but there was no explaining that. There was not going to be any understanding. Um, Shula read everything. I can tell you that much. He, he loved to read what people were writing about him. Um, and I just, I, I, I thought that it was cool that that really meant something to him. Um, and, and I think he took very seriously his job and he wanted you to take your job seriously. And I totally understood it. Anyway, uh, was obviously sad to hear about uh, Shula's passing on Monday. A lot of people in our business knew him a lot better than I did, but I thought that it would be good to reminisce with somebody who knew him as well as any of his players ever did, and that's Larry Zonka. In good times and in some contentious times, Don Shula, Larry Zonka had a great relationship, and I first thought to get Zonka on this show when Monday... I heard him on a press conference and he was really quite emotional about Don Shula. So I said, let's find out where that emotion stems from. And here's my conversation with Larry Zonka. Obviously we're gonna talk Don Shula today. 
uh, with with Larry and Larry, I I uh, I heard you on your little conference call uh, with the Dolphins um, on Monday, and you were very emotional uh, and very heartfelt when you were talking about Don Shula. Even after all these years, he means so much to you, doesn't he? Well, actually, uh, Don's uh, become something of a, less of a coach and more of a family member over the years. Uh, certainly during the course of my career and his career, when we met professionally, it was a coach-player relationship. And on several occasions, it, it uh, got heated. And <laughs> I don't think it ever came to hands-on, but it, several times we were nose-to-nose <laughs> and uh, disagreeing on many things. But it was always his way. And uh, you knew in the end that uh, it was best for the team. What he was telling you was best for the team. But it was easy to get a little disheveled on the field and do something stupid and then cause a penalty or things like that would get under his skin. But uh, then after that relationship ended, over the years since then, I realized how much a family member he's come to be. And that was graphically demonstrated uh, yesterday when I, I learned that he had passed. Uh, sometimes you don't realize that's happening someone's getting that close to you and how much you care about them and feel about them because it's been over the course of 40 years until all of a sudden they're gone. And then you, you feel tremendous remorse. Larry, I want to go back to the beginning first and just so that people can have some sense of your relationship. Let's talk about what happened right at the beginning because when you first got to the Miami Dolphins, that was in 1968, and you played for another coach named George Wilson, and you guys were not a good team at the time. You won, I think, five games the first year and three games the second year, and then George Wilson was out and, and Don Shula was in. So tell me what you thought at the time when one coach got fired and the other coach got hired. Frankly? Peter, I uh, figured I was going down the highway. <laughs> I figured I was <laughs> gone. Coach Shula, uh, when he came to us, was coming from Baltimore where Johnny Unitas was there, and uh, they were not a ball control team, uh, which was something George Wilson, our ex-last coach, was trying to put together through Joe Thomas, our personnel director. Offensively, we were, we were headed that way, mimicking what Green Bay had had, and he was trying to build that uh, personnel director. But then Shula took over, and I figured, well, that'll probably be the end of that. But Shula hired Monty Clark, who was an ex-Browns player that, that blocked during his career for the great Jimmy Brown. So he knew a little something about how to be on the offensive line and how to put an offensive line together. And lucky for me, Coach Shula, and again, this comes down to the head coach's ability to not be one, you know, just totally one-sided. He, he listened to Monty Clark and said, there's a possibility here that we have the makings of a ground control offense. So maybe we should shift from what was your old pattern at Baltimore. Maybe we should look at this instead of just trading and getting, getting rid of it. And the great thing about Shula was he listened to his assistant coach, who was just a first-year assistant coach at that point. But he listened to Monty Clark and started to lean that way, and lo and behold, became a ball control offense in the next two or three years. So that was a great transition, but it also shows 
the versatility of Shula's professionalism. He could, he could take this group of guys and win with them, or he could take that group of guys and win with them. Uh, to quote Bum Phillips, he could take his and beat Yearn, or take Yearn and beat his. And yeah. no, greater, no greater words were ever spoken about the coaching ability of Don Shula than those words right there. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, I heard Mercury Morris talk this week about uh, when Don Shula first came in, that none of the guys on the team were very happy with him because it sounded like you were, you were, you were in Marine basic training at Camp Lejeune or something, you know, the, the work you guys had to put in. What was that like early getting used to that sort of, that amount of work, that, that amount of practice? Well, go back with me, if you will, to 1970. That was the year of the holdout. So the season didn't start until 10 days before the regular season was going to be on. We only played one or two exhibition games. We have a new coach coming in that's going to teach us a completely new offense and defensive structure. The numbering system is going to change all those things. We practice four times a day. Two, you know, a morning walkthrough at daylight in shorts. Then we were out in shorts and, sh and uh, our full pads in, in the morning and then shorts and shoulder pads and helmets in the afternoon and then a walkthrough in the evening. So we had four practices a day for like the first nine days. It was hell. <laughs> we had a guy that had the tolerance of, uh, well, next to nothing. You know, if you didn't pick it up the first or second time, he became vehement about it. And, uh, you know, 90 degree heat, practicing four times a day, 10 days to get ready to install a new offense and defense. Think about all that. Certainly, it was not a happy scenario, and we were not, he, he became something of a Satan figure in just a matter of two or three days. Okay, so was there any open rebellion? <laughs> There's no open rebellion with Don Shula. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, never was, never, never, never occurred. I never occurred to me to even look back before I met him because it, it he was, uh, he was down, straight down the road, straight ahead, man of integrity. What he said went. We played within the rules. The only confines we had were the rules. And if you played within the rules, no matter what you did, you know, it could not be the right thing, but that could be worked with, but don't break the rules. And that led to the, led to the definition of his integrity. In several occasions, there was opportunities where we could have taken advantage of a circumstance. I won't get into particulars, but things happen during the course of the year. Sometimes things land in your lap that tell you what the other team might do. Shula okay, now, Larry, Larry, you got to tell me, is the Oakland Raiders story true? <laughs> the story is, the apocryphal story is that, that somehow, some way, the game plan of the Oakland Raiders was kept in their locker room or found in the garbage can. And Don Shula, uh, when apprised of that, said, I, I don't, I don't want to see that. I'll tell you exactly what happened. Good. And it, 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 uh, I'll tell you because it's a great positive thing for Shula. Leaves a little question about myself. But at, at any rate, here it is. Art Toms was the defensive tackle for Oakland Raiders. He played with me at Syracuse four years before. We were going in after the 72 season in 1973, we were going into the regular season. We were going to play the Oakland Raiders in Oakland. 
the stadium was under some some degree of repairs. It was like the second game of the season. And we went into Oakland on a Friday, I think, and we were practicing there Saturday morning. But because of the, the construction going on in the stadium, we had to use their training room. They had practiced earlier in the day before we got there. They cleared out their locker room, left. We went in and used their locker room because the other one was under construction. I picked Art Tom's locker just for the heck of it because I knew him in college. Thought it'd be funny. He, I was gonna leave him a note in his locker, you know, dead fish in his helmet, something. Mess with him a little <laughs> bit. So I'm sitting in his locker and I'm going through it to find something to write on and I find the Oakland Raiders game plan. Here's their game plan for what they're going to do the next day. Now that can be construed a couple of different ways. Knowing what they're going to do is their fault for leaving it there. Is it the right thing to do? Unquestionably, it's not the right thing to do. But is it cheating? I don't know. You know, it's a fine line there. Um, so I went and handed that report quite quietly to Monty Clark. And when he said, what's this? I said, I don't know. I've never seen it before and turned around and walked away. Here's the bottom line. We lost the game. Even with the game report, we lost the game. So after the game, I'm riding back on the bus with Monty Clark. I turned to Monty and said, you know, he sits down beside me. I said, Monty, what the hell did you do with the game report? He said, I took it to Shula. And when he said, he asked what it was, I told him, he said, tear it up. If we can't beat them straight up, then we shouldn't beat them. There it is. Now, in my estimation, in my world, if you're dumb enough to leave your, your plan for how you're going to play the chess game against me, laying on the stool that I'm going to sit on, I think I'm going to take a look at it, you know. On the other hand, Shula, his famous quotes were, if we can't beat them within the confines of the rules, then we shouldn't beat them. Now, that comes from a guy that's, you couldn't find a guy that's more sincere about winning, but only winning within the rules. Now, that, that tells you a lot. Uh, I think that's why he's the only undefeated coach right there. That's really a great story. <laughs> and I didn't know it, obviously. Larry, um, I, I, I only felt the ire of Don Shula one time. <laughs> and that happened in the early 90s when I was working at Sports Illustrated and I wrote a book for Sports Illustrated uh, on pro football history. And I had the 10 greatest teams of all time. And it wasn't for a single season. It was kind of for an era. So, you know, the Packers of the 60s and, you know, the Browns of the 50s and all that stuff. So, and I didn't have the Dolphins first. And Don Shula got so angry. And, um, you know, he let me know about it, which I'll, I'll say this. I respected him for that because instead of just swallowing it and saying, oh, Peter King, that idiot so-and-so, uh, he, he let it out. And he said, that's, that's wrong. You know, we're, no team ever did what we did in the modern history of pro football. How can we not be the best team? So, but, and I wanted to go into that year with you and just say what so impressed me about that year is that it was not, the A team the whole time. You needed your entire roster for the whole year 
to win 17 games. And that is what, when I look at it in history, just really impressed me. So go back to that year if you can and tell me, when did you know you had something special and why do you think perfection happened? It's interesting that you use the term had something special. I'll tell you where the something special started and how strange it seems, but how it fits Chula's character. The specials part started after we lost Super Bowl VI to the Dallas Cowboys. They kicked our ass. People say, well, how in the world could an undefeated, you know, a perfect season ever come off a Super Bowl loss? That's the very reason for the 72 season. The 72 season, the operation of perfection, started with the agony of defeat in the locker room in Super Bowl VI after the game. Shula threw all the media, all the other people out of the locker room, just the players and coaches were in there. And he said, I want everyone in this room to remember this moment because we're gonna take the pain and agony of this moment and we're gonna take it, take it with us to next year. We're gonna approach the games next year one at a time, like every one of them is replaying this game an opportunity to come back and win after we've suffered this terrible defeat. So each week we're going to remind ourselves of our destiny and what our work is to come back one game at a time with the idea that we're going to approach it like we're going to win every game. He said with the idea like we're going to approach winning every game. He didn't say we were going to win every game. He said we're going to approach every game with the idea that we're going to win every game. In other words, we're only going to concentrate on that game that week we're not going to look forward. We're not going to look backward. We're only that game. That's where the perfection started. Then, of course, and just what you alluded to, it came down to a backup quarterback. Earl Morrow takes over in the third or fourth game. Bob Greasy's legs broken in two places. We don't get him back to the Super Bowl at the end of the season. Lo and behold, every person on that team, First team, second team, backups, special teams, every player at some point in that game, in that season, played a part. And to have that kind of unity, that kind of uh, total awareness towards a common goal, perhaps has never happened before in a season in the NFL. And I think that's why he's the only one that can claim that title. The difference in other people being there, one play, two seconds, Certainly Chicago qualified to be one of the top teams ever. New England, obviously. But did they do it? Was there perfection? Was it all 40 or 44 guys? Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's where that team was superior. Because there wasn't a guy that was even second or third team as a backup that couldn't tell you exactly what to do under any given situation. That's how intense Shula was. The word intensity, intensity intensity has a different definition. It should just say Shula under there as a definition in, in Punk and Wagner. So that should be the definition because he, nothing passed him that season. He was uh, a man on a mission like I've never seen. He took the corpse of a dead team after Super Bowl VI and said, this is what happened to us and nailed it up on the wall. And each day we had to go out to practice, pass that corpse and come back in thinking about what had happened to us so we would concentrate on the, on the matter at hand. That's the kind of dedication, that's the kind of coaching aggressiveness that Shula had, and it worked. What I, I mean, that's, that's an incredibly good description. And I, I think 
what, what is so interesting, a lot of times you see premier teams and most weeks they're winning by 20 or 30 points. You know, the Patriots team in 2007, before they lost to the Giants in the Super Bowl, they were just blowing everybody out. What was so interesting about your year in 1972, in October, Buffalo, you beat them 24 to 23. Early in October, you beat Minnesota 16-14. You play the Jets later in the year, you win by four. Uh, and, and, and so, and, and then you, you get into the playoffs, and you, you beat Cleveland 20 to 14. So there were a lot of games in that season that were not blowouts and that really were kind of, I don't want to be a cliche guy, they were kind of character wins, it seems. I mean, what do you remember about this season in terms of so many competitive games you had to play during the course of the year? We were as good as we had to be. And we hit people not with our first team. We hit them with our second team and our third team. Uh, in the game, the last game that you alluded to, the Cleveland game, it came down to a blocked punt or a blocked field goal. I don't remember. It was Charlie Babb. It was a backup guy that was playing for us, the first-year man. He made the play. Some week, somehow, some way, one guy would make a play that turned things. And that's the definition of team sports is when everyone has a playing part. The great thing about the 72 team was that it was not a dominant team, exactly what you alluded to. It was a competitive team. And we hit you with all 48 of our guys. Every one of them knew just as much as any other one about what they should do under the field under any circumstance. That dead corpse that we went out by and came back every week. You know, we looked at it, we analyzed it, we thought about it. Everything that went happened on that practice field. Shula filmed it, went over the film, and then brought it out the next day. And we would look at the films of the practice the day before and get to the parts where the mistake was, where somebody jumped off sides, where somebody dialed their blitz the wrong way. He would go over and over and over until it just wore, made you crazy to sit in a room. I became where I could start to recite some of my offensive linemen's calls because I just heard him go over them to the point that, that, that I knew them as well as they did. And that's, that's the key to it. Uh, somehow, some way, one guy, and it wasn't a starter, wasn't an all-star, wasn't Paul Warfield or me or Nick Bonacani or Jake Scott. Some Charlie Babb, the first-year guy that was, hadn't even been on the field, goes in and blocks point. One play makes the difference. That's called teamwork. That's what the whole thing's about. That's why when you talk about the greatest of all time, the GOAT, if you will, that's insane in the game because it's a team sport. In order to be the epitome of a team sport, everyone should be in there making a contribution. No tiny contribution is too small because that contribution, if not made, could be the reason that you have the defeat. Ask, ask a New England at the hands of the Giants. Exactly what I'm talking about. Larry, New Year's Eve, 1972. In those days, although the Dolphins at the time had played 15 games and won every one of them, and you're going to play the Steelers in the AFC Championship game. They played 15 games, and they're 11-4 and four at the time. So... Uh, you were playing, it was a 14-game season. You finished 14-0, and, and yet 
you don't have home field advantage in the AFC championship game. Pittsburgh has it because in those days it was done on a, on a rotation. So my question is, that was a, a fantastic football game in and of itself. But the fact that you had to play it on the road after being 15-0, and 0, I just wonder what you guys thought of, you're playing the AFC championship game, you're four games better than the Steelers, and yet you got to fly to Pittsburgh to play that game. I would have preferred to play at home against Miami. <laughs> but when you're going to play in Joe Green's backyard, you kind of sit up in the meeting and take extra note of what's going on. Because uh, the idea of not knowing what you're about to do when you're playing against a guy, and Joe Green's just a singular guy that, that represents that whole Steelers outfit. When we played the Steelers because of the coaching uh, ancestry that went on there, Knox and Old and Shula, the whole, the whole gang there, we were playing people in a mirror. They were reading us, we were reading them, and sometimes it would lock up because we, the offenses were comparable, the defenses were comparable, they aligned the same way. It was a very tough thing. And to just have a small edge, I, I'm not so sure that it wasn't better for us to play away because if we, we'd have been playing at home, we'd have figured, well, we got a little edge because we're at home. That may be what happened to Pittsburgh. That was, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost unthinkable today that, you know, you're undefeated and you go on the road in the playoffs to play a team that's lost four games. At, after you ended up beating Washington in the Super Bowl in that perfect season, there must have been such a range of emotion in that locker room because over a 52-week period, you you did it. You avenged uh, one of the worst losses of your lives, and you came back and won this one. What do you remember about that day and winning that game against Washington? I remember taking the corpse that had been nailed up on the wall from Super Bowl VI down off the wall and putting up the, the, the championship trophy in its place. What a great reward. That trophy would Shula held it, and he hugged it. You know, they carried him off the field. He hugged it. I was leaving to go to the Pro Bowl. I got out of Dodge and went on. But in that locker room, what you just alluded to, there was a moment there when he was holding that trophy and he looked at it, and it was like he got it. It, it, it happened. If there's a pinnacle, if there's a one point that, out, that stands above all the others, you know, waist high up out of the, out of the, the water, above all the rest, and, and, and rays of sunshine come off, it was that moment when he took that, he walked into that locker room with that trophy in front of us. He asked us to do something that I think maybe even he thought was probably impossible, but he still challenged the mountain and got us to go with him and he got us to believe. And when we did it and he walked in with that trophy was a moment that I'll never forget. Now, I was not a fan of Don Shula, as you alluded to from the time he arrived. I had my mixes with him. I, boy, I was nose to nose several times. I thought I'll be out of here before the sun sets. You know, I figured I'm going to be blocking for OJ and Buffalo tomorrow because <laughs> got, you could say, if you went into Don Shula's office, here's the kind of guy he was. In a meeting, if you had a problem and got mad, you know, got up, walked out, whatever, that's okay. 
go to his office. When you walked in his office, he would shut the door and say, okay, what's on your mind? And that was the point where you could download everything. And you end up nose to nose, screaming, beating on the desk, his desk, it's a wonder. I know it had to be reinforced several times because several other people besides me beat on it, threatened to hit him with it in his own office. In there, you could say whatever you had on your mind over in front of the team, you addressed him as coach, you know, and, and honored the position. But when you went into his office, then all the gloves came off. It was uh, Katie bar the door. And many times we had heart to hearts in there. But that's the kind of guy he was in, you know, at the time, I couldn't wait to get away from him. And then when I got away from him, and then came back, and then got away from him again. Uh, then over the years, you know, all that animosity and all that hostility kind of faded and I got really thinking about all the things that we had accomplished together with, with him as the head coach and that's when he started to become a member of the family. And Why do you think you had such animosity toward him from the start? Where did that come from? He's a pusher. He yeah. pushes you. Some of us are, are bestowed with instinct that we want to push ourselves to the very limit. Well what my definition of limit was was different than his definition of limit for me, as was the other 48 guys in the locker room. He pushed us to the, the absolute limit of what we could reach. And in 72, it paid off. Several other years, it paid off. Guys blew up, threw a fit and left, don't trade me, and he did. But that, you know, that, it was tough. But at the same time, you set out with a purpose of winning. And if you really want to win and win within the rules, I can't, I can't bring that across to you enough. He would not have anything to do with any kind of cheating. But win within the rules and win was what it was about. And sometimes that led to a lot of hostility. It wasn't all patting each other on the back and celebrating victories. When we won by those close margins in 72, the next week in practice, we went over every mistake that was made in that game. He didn't like it because we didn't, we didn't dominate. He wanted to dominate, but we couldn't because we weren't that good yet. All right, Larry, I've got to ask you one more thing. It happened in 1974. In March of 1974, you were the second overall selection in the World Football League draft by the Memphis Southmen. And most people who listen to this have no idea what the World Football League is. And, and I'll just tell them that basically, uh, there's been a bunch of other football leagues through the years. And that was the first one after the AFL-NFL merger that came in to try to be a, a legitimate second league. And so you were drafted second, you got a big contract offer, from the Memphis Southmen. And tell me what happened at that time between you and Don Shula when you said, hey, I'm thinking of going and playing in this league. Well, he wasn't happy. Um, I went to see him. You know, I had played out the, uh, well, I, I played out the option that year. And uh, it was after I actually signed with them, then I played the option out. So, and then I left to go to Memphis, uh, go to the Memphis Southmen. Uh, Shula wasn't happy about it, but he was a professional. He understood uh, professional sports is just that. They pay you to play. So I went where the pay was a uh, multiple of 10 or 12 at the time. So that was uh, quite a hike in pay. I went through that. The league collapsed. I came back to the New York Giants. 
and finished that out for three years and then came back to Shula in 1979. Went back to Pittsburgh and played him in Pittsburgh and almost won. <laughs> one play. <laughs> okay, so Super Bowl. but how did how did your relate how was re your relationship affected after you told him that you were going to Memphis? Well, Don's a lot of things was a lot of things, but I think at at the heart of it, he was a, a very much a professional. He understood it was professional football. It wasn't just a, a an idea of winning one for the Gipper anymore. It was the fact that you're making a living when you're sit, when you're when you're a professional and someone offers you ten times your salary or twelve times your salary to sign a contract. Uh, that's pretty worthy of con consideration and perhaps worthy of uh, taking the other job. And that's what I did. How did he react to it? He reacted like the guy he is. He dealt with it because it was reality. When it yeah. was reality, Don had no problem dealing with it. Whether he liked it or didn't like it, I'm sure he didn't like it. But he didn't let that emotion cloud the issue. We still had another season to play before it became actuality. And we went after it that season. And was there any uh, residue, any hard feelings at all in 1979 when for your last year as a pro football player, you went back to the Dolphins? No, the fact that I went back there and was welcomed back there and signed a contract pretty much says it all. We, we sat down. I wished I could have come back uh, when the league, uh, when the new league collapsed. I wished I could have come back to Miami instead of going to New York. But I had a, a three-year tenure to go back into New York and finish that up. And once I finished that up, I thought I've got another year or two. I'd kind of like to go back to the Dolphins and called them, and they were receptive. But they did say, come down, but don't bring your agent. Just come down. <laughs> <laughs> he did say that. <laughs> yeah. In Larry, last thing, in later years, the last few years, um, 15, 20 years, whatever, what's your relationship with Don been like? And how often were you ever in touch with him? Oh, we were in touch several times throughout the year, each year. Um, Every year we would go back at some point, they would bring the team back or whatever. Um, nearly every year, I believe, we went back for a game down in Miami. And whenever I went down for a game, I made sure I, I got in touch with him and he either sat in the box or the box adjacent to his. And I would get to see him during the game. Sometimes we were asked to go out on the field, sometimes not. But it became a uh, family relationship, a celebration of the undefeated season, and mostly brought up by the media but it was a celebration of just seeing all the old guys, all us old guys together again that uh, I really look forward to. That's when, when the players became more than just fellow professional teammates. They became family. And uh, that's when you really noticed it, when you were looking back and talking about it, kidding about the stories and relating the stories to each other. And a lot of hidden truths came out about who did what to whom and who, got, who had to pay for it and all the things that happened in a locker room. Well, Don Shula, if there was one great thing about him, was the fact that he was so demanding and so dominant and such a strong figure, but he had a sense of humor, and he had a jock's sense of humor. He saw the humor in some of the toughest situations, you know. And, you know, I, yeah, I tell the story about Bob Greasy in Super Bowl six. He went out and lost. But Bob Lilly chased him all over the field. He ended up with a second and 26. And he walked over to Coach Shula and said, what do you think? And Coach Shula looked at him and said, what do I think? You're the one that got us into this. 
I mean, and laugh, you know, there you are. I mean, under the most, uh, you're being bombarded in a ditch and somebody cracks a joke and you're all kind of laughing. You know, that's, the, that's, uh, that's how he was, you know, even under the most intense fire, you'd still see him pop up with a big grin on his face when something happened that, that he thought was humorous in, a, in that scenario. But then right back to the intensity, he could go 180 degrees in, in two seconds. Uh, he's an unusual guy. Isn't it kind of cool that to think of sometime, and maybe you never think of this anymore, I don't know, but it must be kind of cool to say there's only one perfect team in modern NFL history, and only one perfect team. And I was a centerpiece of that one perfect team. You ever think about that? I think you've just touched on the very uh, calming lotion of my antiquity. <laughs> when I hear all the things and all the descriptions of the greatest of all times and all the great things that the players now are doing and they're playing 15 plus year careers and I think about the old times and the old rules, how different the game, how much less violent the game is on the field, um, how passing has become the new essence of the offense. Uh, smash in the mouth is not totally off the field, but it's much lessened. Um, I think that's the that's the calming agent right there. Probably makes you feel good. Well, it makes me feel a lot better about the situation. You know that uh, you can't take that away. It's there, and uh, shoes is gone. A lot of the fellows on that team are gone, but there was one time where perfection was achieved in a hundred year period. There was one time, one, one little rock at the very top of the hill. Maybe it's only a quarter inch higher than the other rocks. It doesn't matter, but it is. And there it is. Uh, had someone done something to tie it? Certainly you have to share the spot, but no one did. And for 100 years we were it. And that is a very calming, very uh, secure, very settling feeling. And I enjoyed sharing it with the guys every year over the last few years when the last team would fall, we would get together and talk about it and celebrate it because again, it, it had earned its place in the sun. Once again, each year it had to re-earn it. Now for 100 years, it's the only team that did that. And that's a great feeling. Larry Zonka, I know I said that was last, but I, I do have to follow that up and say at some point when all this corona craziness is over, you and all of your teammates who are still alive are going to get together. And you're probably going to raise a glass and say something about the architect of it who's no longer with you. What do you think you'll say when you toast Don Shula that day? Simply the best. He was the best of the best. And I had the pleasure of knowing him. And I, I said to some other fellas earlier on another show, I don't know where old football players and old football coaches go. But wherever they go when they pass, there's been a lightning bolt in the last few hours that hit. Because Shula just arrived, and he's going to reorganize everything. Count on it. Larry Zonka, this has been an absolute pleasure and education. 
and uh, really one of the coolest conversations I've ever had in my career, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you, sir. That's quite a compliment. You've had quite a career. Uh, send me your book. I'd kind of like to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, thanks so much, really. All right, Pete. Thank you. My thanks to Larry Zonka, and my thanks to, to Don Shula for gracing the sport I've covered for 36 years and for being a guy who um, it meant something to him to do his job the right way every day. Thanks a lot for listening to the podcast. We'll see you back here very soon.